Good morning, Northwest Hills Community Church. Man, Pastor Josh here. Today is going to be an incredible day. Today is a day of huge hope. We have been in this series for 28 weeks now, and today we finish, and today is nothing but good news. So I know the reality is some Sundays we come in here, and we gather in our homes, and we watch on our phones, and we are just down. There are seasons that are hard. There are seasons that are challenging. But today we get to the end, and today is victory. Today is incredibly hope-filled. So I'm keyed up. I'm four or five cups of coffee in my mind where I should be right now because this is a text that I have been waiting for for so long. So um, we're going to go a lot longer than normal uh, on the reel. This will be a bit longer, but I just I, there's so much to kind of cover and there's so much good news. So so much to be hopeful about. So if you're at home right now, I'm going to give you permission just to be like, yes, God, you are good. There's so much to be hopeful for. So we're going to be finishing out Exodus. We're going to land in chapter 40. God's glory is finally, finally going to be with his people after such a long time of waiting. And it is great news. So think with me for a minute here. Like we've been through all these different seasons of quarantine, right? Quarantine. What happens after quarantine? What always happens after quarantine is something good, good news, right? When Jesus is in the desert, right? I didn't even talk about this in our series as the year started. When Jesus is in the desert, and he is in there for 40 days. What did they call the mountain that he met uh, Satan on, where he was tempted by? They called that Mount Quarantina, right? Quarantine, 40. It comes from this idea of separating, of being apart. But then when you come back, something good always happens, right? For 2,000 years, we've been practicing quarantine before the greatest day in the history of all days. That is Easter. That's called Lent. For Lent, that's 40 days where we wait and then something happens. Christ rises again. So if you're down and I get it, right? It's a season where you're like, oh, I wanted to be with my family and I wanted to be with my friends. And now I'm trying to figure out like, should I spend the time with the grandkids? Should I spend the time with my grandparents, with my cousins? What do I do? And you're kind of in this angst. I'm promising you after quarantine, there is good news. There is hope. We have so much hope today. So today, man, it all comes together. So I hope you're ready. I hope you got your Bibles with you. And I hope you're ready to watch the glory of God dwell with his people and then the glory of God dwell with us. So if you're newer to our church today, I'm just going to apologize right now. And I'm going to say you are jumping in to the end of a long series. Uh, It's going to be a little bit confusing for you. Go back last week's sermon. I kind of summarized quite a bit of the major story up to this point. Uh, You can go back. You can listen to that. You can also just read the story of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. It's right towards the beginning. But today we're just going to pick it right up where we left off. Right, So last week we left off um, both incredibly good news but also incredibly discouraging. So good news, Moses is meeting with God, 40 days, another quarantine. God tells him, hey, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to dwell with your people. And in order for you, for me to dwell with you, you are going to build me what they're calling a tabernacle. It's a very specific place where my glory can dwell. And so Moses is like, oh my goodness, God, you're going to dwell with us. This is incredible. But then as he goes back down to where all the people are in the desert, something terrible happens, right? We saw this in Exodus chapter 32, where all the people, they thought Moses is gone. Who is this God? And they make this golden calf. They take some of their jewelry, they melt it down, they make this golden calf. And they have this moment where they fall back to their previous worldview, right? Their previous worldview that gave credit and credence to something other than God for guiding them and leading them. And we talked about the fact that you and I are tempted to do that often. 
we're tempted to fall back into worldviews that uh, are common around us, to giving credit for things in this world to things other than God. And it's a very common, um, it's a common temptation for us. But the reality is, God was furious. Right? Moses was furious. He comes down the mountain. He takes the tablets in which he had written all this stuff down. He smashes them on the ground. I love this. We didn't even talk about this last week. He, he takes the golden calf. He melts it down. Like This is boss level right here. He melts it down. He grinds it all up. He takes the powder and he makes the people actually drink it. Man, Moses had some sway. But he's furious and God is absolutely furious. Right? We ended last week where God says, I'm out. He says, I'm, I'm going to kill everyone. And Moses pleads with God. and says, don't, don't kill them for your name's sake, for the reputation of all the different nations around here who will see what you have done. And then they'll see that you killed them. That does not look good on you. And so God says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to kill you. This is what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go to this land that I promised you. I'm still going to prepare. I'm still going to send an angel before you. This angel is going to go and he's going to give you everything that I promised, right? And so we talked about the reality that they're going to have all the prosperity that they could ever long for. They're going to have the security. They're going to have the relationships. They're going to have the family. They're going to have the job. They're going to have all these amazing things that human beings long for. But God makes one little claim at the end here. He says, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the status. I'm going to give you the job. I'm going to give you the spouse. I'm going to give you everything that you might ever long for, but I'm not going with you. Right? And we talked about that invitation for you and I. What if that invitation was on the table for us? Right? What if that invitation was God sitting down, literally telling you, Josh, you can have whatever you want, but I'm not going to be with you? How would we respond? I think it's easy to sit here in church and be like, man, I would I, I really want God's presence more than anything. But I think it takes some real soul searching to say, God, if I look at my life, what are the things that I'm really after? Am I after the blessings of God or am I after the presence of God? And we see the people respond and we see how Moses responds. And he says, God, if you don't go with us, God, if, if you don't go with us, we're staying right here and we're going to die. And it's not worth going anywhere if we don't have your presence. That's where we ended last week, and uh, we're going to see today where we're going to pick it up in chapter 33, verse 17. God responds to Moses, and he says these words. So I'm about to read scripture. If you're in a place where it makes sense to stand, you can stand. If you're watching this later on a Wednesday, just take a minute and just really listen to God's word here. I'm just going to read something real short. This is God's responding to Moses when Moses says, if you're not going with us, we're staying right here. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit down, do what you need to do. So, so God says to Moses in response to this, he says, okay. He says, I'm going to go with you. He says, I know your name. Because of mercy, I love you, and I will dwell with you. So today, we're going to look at kind of as the book finishes, we're going to look at how Israel responds. What does that look like? What does that look like when they hear this word from God and how God responds? So we're going to look at both of these things, and then ultimately we're going to land on then what does that mean for you and I? So Israel, how do they respond? They respond in three primary ways. 
The first way is, is again, kind of how I, I started this whole series or this whole uh, sermon today with a lot of excitement. Because this is, it's wild, it's, it's hard to even imagine what this would have been like. But the first thing that we see Israel do in chapter 36, 37, 38, 39, and the first part of 40 is they do it. Right? They do the very thing that God asked them to do. Now imagine, like, remember the story. The story is perpetual failure. The story is nothing but God saying, I want you to do this, and they do it for a second, and then they fail. But finally here, it's, it's almost like this is a whole different people group. They're able to do what God has asked them to do. And not only are they able to do it, but they're able to do it with precision, with excellence, down to the most minute of all details. God says, this is what I want you to do, and they do it. Right? Imagine you're in a season where you've just had failure after failure after failure. Because right, here's the people, they're coming out of slavery from Egypt and, and they're hungry and they say, God, you're not good, you're not going to provide for us. They're thirsty and they say, God, uh, we had it better off back in Egypt and God keeps providing for them and they keep messing up. When Moses is with God, they keep messing up. Right? But then we see here that they are able to follow through. They're able to do it. So have you been in a season in your life where it just feels like it's just failure? It's just failure after failure after failure. No matter what it is, we all struggle with failure at times, right? Maybe our career isn't going the way that we want it to go, right? Maybe we have these aspirations and these ideas of what being a parent is like, and then you're like me, and it's hard, right? And you're just like, man, I, I wish I could be a better parent. Or, or maybe you're trying to fight some sort of addiction, Right? Some sort of addiction that's just like, man, this has had a stronghold on my life and I know it's not good for me. I know it's destroying relationships. I know I'm not the person that I want to be and I'm trying to fight it and I keep on failing. Right? Whatever it is, we all go through seasons of failure. But let this text tell us that there is a time for renewal. Right? There's a time where we can say, you know what, I have failed in the past, but God's given me hope for a future. And I can do it. I can move forward. And that's what they do. They move forward. They have incredible, incredible hope. And maybe you need to hear what God says to Moses about the people before they're about to build. We see this in chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right, so wherever you're watching this morning, first question I would ask you is, is there an area of your life where you just need to obey? Where you just need to move forward and say, okay, I I actually can do the things that God's asking me to do. Because forever this this group of Israel failed, they failed, they failed. But now what we're going to see is that they follow through and they do exactly what God asked them to do. The second thing that we see Israel do um, is that as they're preparing this space for God to dwell, it was incredibly costly. Right, so again, thinking through four centuries of slavery... You want to talk about a people who had nothing, no security, no real means of passing anything down to your kids, no, no you know, savings, no house, no assets whatsoever, no feeling of value that you can say, hey, my kids or, or the generations behind me, I'm going to provide for you because they had nothing. They were slaves. Right, but then something happened that we didn't even talk about in our study. Something happened in Exodus chapter 12 as they were leaving, as, they were, um, as the, the angel of death came in and killed the firstborns of all the Egyptians. Something happened to the Hebrews that was very unique, that had never happened before. 
right? As they were leaving, the Egyptians were terrified of them. They were terrified because they saw the, the killing of the firstborns. And so uh, something happens in chapter 12, starting in verse 33, where we see this acclamation of all kinds of wealth to the Hebrews. And I want you to read this with me or hear me read this in chapter 12, verse 33, that put the, Egyptian, or that put the Israelites in a very different place financially that they had ever been in before. Listen to this. It says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So they're terrified. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. They needed bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. He told them to do this the chapter before. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Right, so for the first time ever, this people group has something that they're proud of. They have something that they can hold on to. They have something that gives them value, that they feel like they have value, that they feel like they have worth, right? For so long, what do they do? The men and women of Israel look around and they see all the people of Egypt and they feel inferior, Right? You ever been in that state? You ever been in a state where you look around and you just don't quite feel like you measure up with everyone? My sister and I had a good laugh the other week. She, um, I was talking with her and we were talking about what it was growing up, uh, what growing up was like. And my parents, incredible parents, uh, very much lived within their means. And, and they always had uh, what we would call a pretty nasty van growing up. And here's the reality. As a junior high or high school student, when all your friends have cool cars and SUVs and Suburbans and your parents have an old van, like, you're always kind of like, can you, like, pick me up around the corner? Like, you don't necessarily want to be the person who's, like, front and center, like, in this old van. And no offense to anyone who has vans, but they're not cool. There's nothing cool about a van. And so my sister and I just, we laughed about that. And and so here's the reality. We we all know to some degree, and I'm joking about this, but we all know to some degree of what it's like to feel like, oh man, if I only had that, then I could feel a little bit more valuable. That I could feel like, I could be like those other people who have all these great things. Right now, for the first time, Egypt had all these things. They had the jewelry. They had the things that gave them the feeling of security. They gave them the ability to pass something down to their children that they could trade for, that they could start a business with. And the truth is, they gave it up. They gave a lot of it up. They sacrificed a lot to build this space for God to dwell. Listen to this in verse 35. I'm going to read a longer chunk here. This is what it was like for the, for the Hebrews to come together and to build this space for God to dwell. Starting in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord, and every one who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who can make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. 
And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Imagine with me for just a minute. If you were to jump ahead, I think it's in chapter 28, right around verse 8 or 9. We read this phrase that's specifically talking to the women, and it says that the women brought their mirrors so that they could build the bronze basin. Now, if I read history right, history tells me that mirrors um, were prominent early in ancient Egypt. The reality is that this wouldn't have been a common place for any of the Hebrew women initially until that plundering moment where for the first time, perhaps, a woman was able to look at herself in a mirror and say, man, this is what I look like. This is how I can make myself beautiful, especially in a culture surrounded by Egypt where um, that was a very common thing. But what what did the Hebrew women do? They gave it up. They gave it up for the building of this place where God could dwell. Right, a question that we can ask ourselves today is, man, what does it look like for us to sacrifice? What does it look like for us to make a contribution? And here's the beautiful thing that I get to just say thank you as your pastor and as a part of Northwest Hills. So many people have for so long given so sacrificially and so faithfully to the work of what's happening here at Northwest Hills and to the broader work of God's movement around the world. And so, man, we, through the middle of pandemic, through the middle of so much turmoil over the last decade or so, we have been primarily, um, God has just blessed us with faithful giving. And, and so many of you have given faithfully out of sacrifice to make ministry happen here. And so just thank you. Man, thank you for giving. Thank you for being um, a part of God's blessing to our city. You know, I think about all the new people who've come to our church in the last couple months, right? I think we've had over about 150 guests. I think about the, the couple people I've talked to who have for the first time in their lives set foot in a church, and that's not possible without resources, right? Like, no one likes to talk about this. It makes it feel a little bit uncomfortable, but the reality is the more resources we have, the more ministry that we can do. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty straightforward, and so thank you for those of you who are faithfully giving, right? If, if you are not in that category and you haven't done that, I would just invite you Man, be a part of what we're doing here. Like, Jesus talks about giving so much. He talks about more than a heaven and hell combined. There's so much to be said when it comes to sacrificially giving. And here's the deal. It's, um, God doesn't need it. Right? We talked about this last week. We've talked about this before. God didn't need Moses to do his work to free the people. God could have just in a second said, boom, I'm going to annihilate the Egyptians. The Hebrews could be set free. But what does God do? He often works through people. And what does he do when he works through people? He blesses the people doing the work. Right? So Moses knew God so intimately well by being faithful, by sacrificing his time and his treasure and his talent to obey God. And so just the invitation is there. Man, when we give to the things that God asks us to give, watch and see what God will do in our life. Right? We also see in this text that it's not just money, it's time and talent. 
We see all the women who are spinning the yarn to make some of the, the clothing. We see the men who are coming together to do the work. And if you were to read chapter 37, 38, 39, we'd see all the work that's being done. And this is all volunteer work. This is all people coming together with their time. And man, the reality is our time is incredibly precious. Right, especially when we live in such a culture of abundance where a lot of people have means, time is one of the most precious resources that we have. And so we see here that they were giving their time. Right, so maybe a question that you have to ask yourself today is, God, where in my life do I need to be giving more time? Right, because it's good that we sacrificially give, but maybe I also need to be contributing of my time. Right, so we see that as the second thing. The third thing that we see, and this is a pretty big shift in the story, is the third thing that we see through the people, uh, through the nation of Israel, is that they now take on a leading role of how God works in the world. Right? So as this story started in Exodus, it was very God-centric. Right? God was the one who was kind of moving all the pieces. God was the one who was saying, hey, Moses, I want you to do this. Aaron, I want you to do this. God was the one who was directing and guiding everything. And all the text was centered around what God was doing and what God was asking other people to do. Uh, I want you to move over here, Israel. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But now for the first time in the text, we see a massive shift, not only in the story of Exodus, but really in the greater story of the rest of the Old Testament, is that this nation now becomes the primary means through which God moves, right? And so we see that in their faithful act of obedience in building this temple, and we're going to see that as we follow along this story, uh, really of narrative, how this nation works. So we see this major, major shift, right? So um, as they shift... I think a, a simple question for us to ask is, how are we being involved in God's story? Right? Because it's not just a, a God-centric story where God you know, wakes you up on a Tuesday and says, this is what I want you to do today. Although the reality is that can happen. Right? That does happen when we open up God's Word. And God's Word is so crucial to know who He is and to know how to live. And, and you know, we think about um, the, the text in Exodus, and sometimes we, we think like, oh, well, that must have been so easy for them because God was speaking to Moses. But what was Moses doing? If we pay careful attention, Moses was writing it down, right? Because uh, the average person who's just going to hear this from Moses, they might have some doubt there. So God writes it down for them. So they're going off of written tablets, right? So God had a written word for them, and he has a written word for us. And the invitation for us is to obey that written word and to be God's primary mouthpiece and that conduit, like we talked about earlier, of his love to the world. So that's the invitation for you and I, right? So what do we see in the people's response to God and wanting to dwell with them? We see first and foremost that they have a ton of hope and they obey, right? Where they go through seasons of failure after failure, but finally they obey and they do the hard work. And it takes, some, what scholars say, somewhere between two and six months to painstakingly go through every single detail to create the space for God to exist. We also see the reality that it took huge sacrifice, both financially and of their time and of their talents. And then we see that they take on the primary piece of how God works through the world. All right, so now how about what is God doing during this? You know, that's what kind of Israel was doing. That's what the Hebrew nation was doing. But what do we see God doing? Right, what we see happening in the story is incredibly important. Right, if we go back to the very beginning of creation, God's primary goal in creation, we see this in Genesis of 1 and 2 and into chapter 3, his primary goal with Adam and Eve is to be with them. We, we look at this word often, to dwell with them. 
Right? You read in the text that God was with them. He was communing with them. There was relationship. There was a, there was a closeness there. But once sin enters the world, right? once Adam and Eve rebel against God and they say, God, thank you, but no thanks. I want to live my life my own way. God's presence leaves Eden. Right? So if you were to read the rest of, of Genesis, if you were to read the first part um, of, of Exodus, we see God's presence leaving humanity in a primary way where he's communicating on a regular basis. But then something significantly happens here from chapter 25 of Exodus all the way through 40. And what we see here really is a recreation of what was happening in Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis, where God longs to have his presence with his people, and he longs to make his glory known and to have his presence there in a very tangible way. So follow me with some of these parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and Exodus 25 through 40, where in the recreation of the tabernacle, we have a very like place of early Eden. Right, so follow me. In Genesis, in early Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we have seven different movements of creation, all starting with the phrase, and God said. Right, we have this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 14, verse 20, 24, and 26. In Exodus, we have seven different phases of creation of this space where we have the same language, and the Lord said... We see this in 25 verse 1, chapter 30, 11, 17, 22, 34, chapter 31, verse 1, and verse 12, right? Notice some of the similarities. If you were to go back and read, I'm sorry we're not going to do this in this study, but if you were to go back and you were to read exactly what this tabernacle was like, there's huge similarities. First of all, we see um, that they're uh, guarded by cherubim. Right? We see that uh, they are built with precious stones, with jewels, and with a lot of gold, and both had the presence of God in them. Right? We also see the parallel where at the end of the creation count, what does God do? He takes a Sabbath. He rests. God's building. He's working. He creates all things, and then he rests. Right? What does God tell the people to do? Build, 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 then take a Sabbath. Right, which, by the way, side note, is a huge theme in the book of Exodus. Twelve different times, God says, Sabbath. Like, I know humans' nature and our nature is to work and to drive hard and to try to feel like we're conquering and accomplish something. And God's saying, for your whole life, this is going to be um, toil. You're going to work hard. You're going to want to keep striving hard. But I want you to take one day every week. And I want you to take a day to just pause and say, you know what, God, you are the provider, you are the sustainer, I need you to do the work of my life, and I'm going to take a breather from all my work, right? So we see that in early Genesis, we see this here again in Exodus. Not only that, but the next thing that we see is after the Sabbath, after the the work to build it, um, in these seven different phases, there's a Sabbath, and then God blesses it. Right? We see this in early Genesis. We see that God saw all that he did, and he said that it was good, and he blesses it. Right? Well, what do the people do once they build the tabernacle? Right? Uh, Moses inspects the tabernacle. Right? There's, um, there's this moment where Moses blesses all the work. We see this in Exodus chapter 39, verse 43. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. All right, one more piece of par- parallel, which uh, you might not think about, but here's the truth. Who wrote both of these? 
Moses. You think Moses knew what was going on here? You think he's, he's writing down early Genesis? You think he's, he's talking about this story? And you, you think he's going to miss this correlation of God recreating the space where his presence can dwell? Moses himself is writing both of these stories. He knows that God's desire is to dwell with his people once again. Right? And that's what happens in this text. We read this text where the people do all the work. They, they build the bases and the frames and the poles and the pillars and the, the covering, the ark, the mercy seat, the veil, the table, the bread, the golden altar, the burned incense, the door, the grain offerings, the basin, the water. And then they wait. Think about what it would have been like to go through all that work for two to six months. And the reality is I, I have to imagine they're, they're just kind of hoping at this point, God, I, I hope your presence is going to come. God, um, we know we've failed you in the past. We, we know you've been angry with us. God, but we want your presence here. Man, I, I have to believe that they went through seasons of doubt. God, are, are you going to show up? Are you who you say you are? I'm doing all this work. I'm trying to do this, these things that you've commanded me to do. Are you going to show up? And then what happens at the very end, the last thing that we read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 to 38 Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Finally, what started in slavery ends in freedom, and the pinnacle of all freedom is the glory of God dwelling with their people. It's seen through smoke, it's seen through fire, and it's seen in this place that they call the tabernacle. It's seen in this beautiful place that no one is allowed to get close to but once a year. All right, so how about for you and I, though? Right, as we close out the story, what does this mean for us? Because we don't have a tabernacle. I don't have a place that we go to. There's not some closet here on campus that's like, God's presence is here, and once a year the, the elders can get near. Like, that's just not reality. Right? This is something that is ancient. This is an ancient story, ancient text. What about for you and I? What happened to this pillar? What happened to this cloud? What happened to God's glory and His presence? And why does it very often feel like I don't get that tangible feeling of God's presence with me in a way that probably would have felt like watching this pillar of fire move? Right, what happens? So if you were to follow this story, you were to see that this tabernacle, this place where God dwelt, moved with the people wherever they moved, wherever God's presence moved. So when the, the cloud moves, they move the tabernacle. When the fire moves, they move the tabernacle. And they did this for 12 generations. All the way to the spot where they finally get to Jerusalem. And they've been in Jerusalem for a while now. You've got the kings, you've got Saul, you've got David. The land is now conquered. There's huge peace with his son Solomon. And Solomon builds a final structure. 
right? A structure that's going to house God's glory. So this is no longer some janky tent out in the desert with goat. This is a massive, massive temple where God's presence now dwells and God's presence fills this temple and it is a sight to be seen. And the people experience God's presence on the regular in Jerusalem there for a long season underneath the reign of Solomon and then some of the kings to follow. Right, but then something happens. They become very used to God's presence. They start taking God's presence for granted and they start to reject and disobey the commands of God. You have this interesting scene, I want to say it's in Jeremiah, I want to say around chapter 7, where there's kind of just this arrogance about them. Well, if God's presence is with us, we don't have to worry about being conquered. Because we can kind of just do whatever we want to do. We can live the life that we want to live. Because God's with us. We got the temple. We got his presence. And you've got all these voices telling these people who are disobeying God, you need to obey him. You need to obey God or there's going to be trouble. And there's kind of this swagger and this arrogance that God's not going to leave us. We've got this because God's presence is with us. And then we have this scene in Ezekiel chapter 10 where God's presence leaves. It's a, it's a terrible scene. The presence of God leaves the temple. The pillar, the fire is gone. And what happens subsequently? What happens subsequently is Babylon comes in. They destroy the temple. It's gone. They destroy the city and they exile all the people. They take them far away. They take them to Babylon. And for 70 years, the people are in exile. They have no presence. They have no temple. God's presence is nowhere to be found on the earth. And then after a while, after 70 years, Persia conquers Babylon lets them go back and they rebuild. We've talked about this and we went through our study of Nehemiah. They go back and they rebuild. They rebuild the second temple. And, and we've talked about the scene where the second temple is being rebuilt and one generation's crying while the other ge- generation is celebrating. The generation that's crying, they're crying not only because is the temple just a shadow of what it was formerly, but they're crying primarily because God's presence never comes. His presence doesn't come to the second temple. So for 500 years, or about 400 years after this point, God's presence is nowhere to be found on earth. And the people have this temple, but they don't have God's presence. So you have this people longing for the stories that they heard from generations before where God's presence was with his people. And you have this longing, you have this very strict religious group of people, the Hebrews, the Jews, longing for this place where God's presence would dwell. And then what happens? We get to John chapter 1. We read this in verse 4. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Is that word glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father who is full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Right, follow me for a minute here. This, I, this is so wild. I never got this. It took me a long time, just even in study, to kind of put this all together and realize, and this is what this was all about. So you go to a, um, a part of the scripture in the Gospels that talks about the transfiguration. I think of Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, Jesus goes to the top of this mountain. He takes with him Peter, James, and John. And on the top of this mountain, his body is transfigured. Right? I'm going to read this text. Um, we read this. It says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
right? And then guess who's with them? So you've got Peter, James, and John. You've got this moment where it's like the, God's radiance is beaming through Jesus Christ. And then who's there? You've got Moses. And you've got Elijah. And you've got this moment where these three disciples are going, wait a second. Like this glory that we've been waiting for for so long, like this is it. Because they also hear these words. A cloud descends, God's glory descends, and they hear the audible voice of God. And God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So they're going, you've got to be kidding me. This glory that we've been waiting for for so long is finally here. And it's here in this person. And then they're going back down the mountain. And, and you have to imagine Peter, James, and Saunders. Like, I cannot wait to tell everyone God's glory is finally here. And Jesus says something so interesting. He says, don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. Just so weird. Like, why wouldn't God want everyone to know? Why wouldn't Jesus want the world to know that the glory of God is in me, that I am God? Why wouldn't he want people to know that? To answer that question, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think in verse 8. It says this, If the rulers of this age had understood this, they wouldn't have killed the Lord of glory. In other words, if the Hebrew nation, if all the leaders knew that God's glory was in this person and they believed that, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't die, he doesn't pay for sin. And if he doesn't die, he doesn't pay for my sin. And he doesn't pay for your sin. But in Christ's death on the cross, that seed of God's glory in one person is planted and is spread. And through the Holy Spirit now, the glory of God dwells now in you and I. I want you to read these words with me or hear these words in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So where is this glory of God? Where is this glory that we see about at the end of Exodus chapter 40, where he, he appears in a cloud and in fire? This glory was sent to the temple. This glory left. It came back in the person of Christ. When Christ died and rose again through his Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, the glory of God now dwells in us. And we are that temple. Your life, my life, now needs to be the place where people get near it and they say, there is a God who exists. There is a God who loves me. There is a God who is for me. And they experience that through our lives, through the, the work of the church, through the temple that God is building together. Us as a people. Man, so God's glory is no longer present in one place it's present in us and so as we close out this series as we close out this book we ask ourselves what does it mean to truly live what it means to truly live is to have the glory of god dwell within us and what it truly means to live is to share the glory of god with other people to be that conduit of god's love to the world to be that tabernacle to be that tent, to be that city on a hill, to be that lamppost in the darkness where the world is saying, look, there's something there. So my hope would be that we would be that city on a hill. 
My hope would be that when we're doing things like the bread campaign that we just finished out, that we would be bringing hope and light to our world. So when we're in quarantine, when we're at home, one beautiful piece of that is we got all sorts of little flashlights all over our city where we're bringing hope and light. And yeah, there is a raging fire when we gather together and God's presence is fully here in a unique way. But in seasons like this where we quarantine, where we get away, that presence is there just as well. So I just pray that in your home, you're experiencing that glory and that goodness and that fullness of God. And as we close here, I, just, I do want to give an invitation too. If you're just like, man, that sounds so sweet, but I don't know that. Just follow along with me as I close and pray this out. So Father God, we, we thank you for your word. And, and I know that there are people who hear this and they think, I want in on that. I want that special presence of God. Lord, it's incredibly simple. And we know that we're not in a room right now, so there's no one else around. But it's literally as simple as saying, Jesus, you had the glory of God. You are God. And when you died, God, you paid for my sin and my rebellion against you. And all I have to do is say, Jesus, you're God. You died for me. Thank you. I need your life in place of mine. And that presence gets transferred to me. God, if there's anyone who's watching right now, I just, I just ask that they would have that simple prayer. God, I need your glory to be transferred to me so that all my sin and garbage can be washed clean and I can now be a city on a hill in my workplace, in my home, that I can have a fresh start. Lord, like Israel, who was like, you know what? Like, I failed, I failed, I failed, but now I can start fresh and I can start new again and I can obey you. God, for those of us who have been following you for a long time and, and maybe we're in a season where it just feels like, man, that, that glory feels low. That glory doesn't feel like it's raging. That fire feels dim. God, would you just blow fresh wind? I love the spirit, that wind. God, the spirit that just gives us the fullness of joy in your presence. God, with your glory, that's where fullness of joy is found. God, we need that this morning. Thank you for technology that while we're apart, we can still be together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.